Black Panther. Such a good movie. Uh, this was the scene where we meet Shuri, uh, the, the little sister, the kid sister of T'Challa. And what you find out pretty quickly is that while, of course, T'Challa is the hero, he's the king, he couldn't be the hero if it wasn't for Shuri. She's the genius behind all of the creative inventions that make Black Panther what Black Panther is. It's her creative spark that really enables Black Panther to be king, to be the hero. That creativity. Well, we have been in a series the last couple of weeks that we've called Inspired. And in it, we have been looking at this notion of creativity. And particularly at what it means to be people who are made in the image of the creator God. So the first week we looked at God as creator and what it means that that is who we are introduced to God as first thing. And then we talked a little bit last week about what it looks like to be people who bear God's image. How do we kind of look at the creative spark within us and use that to be a part of what God's doing in the world? And you can see a little evidence of that this morning. If you noticed uh, when you came in in the foyer, there's a little pop-up art gallery back there with some of our own folks who just do some art who have brought in their stuff to share with us. I encourage you, if you didn't look at it, check it out before you leave this morning. There's some really amazing stuff back there. Um, So take a minute and look at that. And and that's just, again, part of this, uh, our desire to create some space for us to help you think about how is it that God has made you creative and what gifts might you have to offer the world. And so this week, we're continuing that theme, and we're going to look at the creative Christ. The creative Christ. Now, in Jesus, we see the creative powers of God on full display. Nowhere do we see God's creativity as clearly as we do when we come to the person of Jesus. And nowhere in Jesus' life do we see that illustrated, I think, as clearly as we do in the story we're going to look at today. Now, traditionally, in the church calendar today is Palm Sunday— if you're not familiar with that, that's okay. Uh, it's, it's part of the story where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and those who are gathered around kind of hailing his coming into the, the town, they lay down their coats and palm branches in front of him. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But th- So it got this name, Palm Sunday. So we're going to look at that story this morning. We're actually going to look at it uh, in Mark's Gospel, which is the earliest recorded uh, Story, the earliest recorded uh, encounter, or I'm sorry, account that we have of that uh, experience. Uh, so, Mark, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. Mark is in the uh, New Testament. It's the second gospel, the second biography of Jesus that we come to. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along up here on your screen. And we're going to read Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. 
Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon, and he returned to Bethany with the twelve disciples. This story is pretty remarkable. Now, at first glance, it might just seem like this kind of obscure, weird thing that happened a long time ago in a galaxy far away, and we don't really understand why it would happen. But hey, it was a long time ago, so I guess people rode into towns on donkeys. But if you look closer, what you realize is that this is actually a little bit more like a piece of performance art. Jesus is doing something really specific in this that is very similar to what we might think of as performance art. Now, what do I mean by performance art? Well, what do you think of when I say the the words meat dress? Meat dress, right? Okay, so the the 2010 VMAs, right, where Lady Gaga donned a a meat dress. If this is new for you, you should Google it. It's kind of fun. Um, So she actually wore a dress made from meat to the VMAs as a way to express her protest with how the government was handling LGBTQ folks in the military, the don't ask, don't tell policy. That was kind of her way of drawing attention to that. Now, when people kind of saw this, some people responded with a lot of enthusiasm, like, this is so courageous of her, that's great. Other people were like, that's really weird. I don't understand why you're wearing meat. Uh, Some people were really bothered that she was wearing meat because animals were killed so that she could have a meat dress. And there was, you know, there was a lot of talk about it. <clears throat> but that's kind of the point, right? There was a lot of talk about it. A lot of people set up and went like, what's up with the meat dress? Let's talk about the meat dress. When I said to you, meat dress, I would say probably, I don't know, 80% of you were like, oh, uh, yeah, the meat dress. Right? You remember it. It got your attention. It's performance art. The idea is to make an impression, to communicate something that sticks with you in a way that if she just got up and said, like, this is what I think about this issue, you forget it five minutes later. But because she did this, this symbolic act, it, like, burned into our brains in a way that causes us to remember it, at least at some level. And I would argue that this is what, this is what Jesus is doing, that this in in what is often called the triumphal entry, as Jesus rides this donkey into Jerusalem, he's giving us a piece of performance art. He's trying to call our attention to something that he wants to get imprinted in our psyche in a way that we won't forget. So what's he saying? So a little context. Uh, So Jesus is riding the donkey into Jerusalem during Passover. This would be a time... So the Passover meal was began back uh, during when the, the Israelites were awaiting their deliverance from Egypt. So in the book of Exodus, there's a story, again, if you're familiar with the Moses story at all, maybe you saw Prince of Egypt or Charlton Heston as Moses or one of the many different iterations of that, where God leads the Israelites out of Egypt. The night before it happens, they take this Passover meal. The meal is this expectation of deliverance. They eat it with unleavened bread because they don't have time to let the bread rise because they know that very soon God is delivering them and they're going to make it out of here. So the Passover meal is this meal of an expectation of deliverance. 
So people come from literally all over the known world to celebrate this meal of ex- <clears throat> excuse me, this meal of expectation together in Jerusalem. Thousands of people. They're waiting deliverance. They're enacting this as they take Passover. Meanwhile, they're currently under the thumb of an Egypt-like empire, Rome, probably the most powerful empire we've seen since Egypt. So they are under an oppressive regime, awaiting deliverance, taking a meal of expectation of deliverance. And as they're doing this, Jesus rides in on a donkey. And as he does, he's greeted with these these words, right? This blessed is he, or or I I think the the version that we read, uh, how was it written? Let me get it right. Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Okay, so what they're actually doing here is they're they're singing part of the Psalms. Psalms, uh, again, the Psalms is like a songbook that we find right in the middle of the Bible. If you have a, a, a Bible that has Old Testament and New Testament, about right in the middle, there's the Psalms. And Psalm 113 to 118 are called the Psalms of Ascents. And these were traditionally Psalms that were sung by pilgrims who were going into Jerusalem as they're kind of moving towards Passover. They're moving towards the, this time when they would take this symbolic meal where they're expecting God to deliver them. They're singing these songs. And so as Jesus rides in on this donkey, they're singing these songs of ascent, welcoming him in. I mean, this is, this is a, a, an incredible opportunity for Jesus to kind of take a stand and say, you know what, we're going to overthrow these oppressors. This is the time for deliverance right now. Join me and let's go. I mean, he already had some of his followers who were like, let's get it going, Jesus. We've got some swords. Let's do this. I mean, this is the time that if Jesus wanted to, to lead a violent overthrow of Rome, he probably could have made a good shot at it. But he doesn't. He rides in on a donkey. So what's up with the donkey? <clears throat> well, there's this uh, passage in the Old Testament, in this kind of obscure, what is often called the Minor Prophets. It's a, one of the, the p- prophetic books that we get in the Old Testament. Uh, prophets were people who spoke on behalf of God to the people. And in one of them, Zechariah, we get this interesting statement. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. We read, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem! Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle, and your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood. So as Jesus kind of enacts this, as he rides in on this donkey, he's, he's making a statement. This is a, a passage that people would have been familiar with. It would have kind of fed into their expectations that there's a king who's coming, who's going to deliver us. It lines up with the Passover, this, this expectation of deliverance. And here comes Jesus on this donkey saying, the one that Zechariah talked about, well, that's me. 
but why why a donkey? Like, is that just traditional king, like, you know, transportation? Actually, not at all. In fact, people did not frequently ride donkeys. It wasn't a thing. Donkeys were pack horses or pack animals, right, that you would put things on and lead them. People just didn't ride them. It, it stuck out. <clears throat> in fact, it stuck out in a very particular way. In fact, um, Caesar, the, the ruler of the Roman Empire, and all rulers, in fact, were known to, when they would be victorious, when they would ride into a city after conquering it, they would do so on a war horse, a, a large, majestic stallion that communicated the power and might of the emperor. In fact, there was a, a story, a mythological story, and it was rooted in truth, but of, as, as many of those stories were, it was kind of expanded over the years, of how Caesar raised a horse from, you know, from a foal and made sure no one ever rode it so that when he conquered a particular city, he could ride in on this horse that no one had ever ridden. The one and only Caesar. No one else had done it before. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to go and find a donkey and a colt and make sure no one's ever ridden on it, he's being really intentional. He is very intentionally forming a counter story to the story of Caesar. He's parodying Caesar. Now, not like the onion, right? Like he's not just trying to get some yucks. He's not doing, hey, isn't this funny? I'm like Caesar, but on a donkey, hey. Right? Like that's not what he's doing. He's forming a kind of a counter story. He's a, a different way. He's saying, this, I am your king, and I have come to deliver you. And this is what that's going to look like. He rides in on a donkey. When the king comes to deliver the people, he does as a humble servant king, not as a powerful ruling lord. It's a remarkable contrast. But at the same time, Jesus could have, you know, if Jesus just wanted to kind of not make waves, he doesn't do this to just make sure he doesn't upset people. If he just wanted to not make waves, what he could have done is just withdrawn. He could have taken his followers and said, you know what, this is going to be, this is going to be kind of, it's going to be rough. There's, there's Romans everywhere. People might try and make me king by force. We don't want to cause problems. Let's just retreat and form a little religious commune and do our thing over here. He could have tried to kind of keep it on the down low. Don't ruffle any feathers. Let's just do our, our religious thing. But he doesn't do that either. He's neither violent nor secretive He's very public, but drawing attention to a very different kind of kingdom, led by a very different kind of king. It is very much like Lady Gaga in the meat dress. He wants this to grab people's attention and cause them to go, what in the heck is that all about? What's happening? Jesus is offering us a creative display of what God is like and what it looks like when God comes to rule on earth as it is in heaven. He comes not with violence to wield power over us, 
And he doesn't do it kind of on the slide just for those people who kind of get the word and, and meet him up at the secret place. But he does it as a humble servant king. In this, Jesus tells us what God is like. He uses his amazing creativity to give us an image, a visceral image of what it is that the creator is like and what it is that his kingdom is like. And we see this throughout Jesus' ministry. I mean, this, he is the most creative person who has ever lived. I mean, if you read the stories, right, like Brad and I were joking about the, the miracles, but if you read the stories of Jesus' miracles, they were remarkable. And they weren't just like, I mean, they were, this was all like street theater, and not in a way that it was false, but in a way that it was done particularly to draw our attention to things that were true. Right? Because when Jesus went to heal a blind man, he didn't just go, hey, don't be blind anymore. He like spit on the ground and made mud and put it in his eyes. Well, why go to all of that problem? Well, he's reenacting creation in front of people so they can see the creator making eyes right in front of them. And when, when the, the woman comes to, to ask that Jesus would go and heal her daughter, the Gentile woman, he, he makes a scene, even referring to Gentiles as dogs, putting this woman in a place where she actually has to stand up for herself and push back and show herself to be a formidable opponent. He elevates her in front of others by engaging her in dialogue, not just by saying, hey, everyone, I want to tell you, I know you think less of Gentiles than women, but you shouldn't do that. No, he does it in a way that's visceral, that sticks with us. Jesus is a brilliant artist, artist, and he uses his creativity to point us to the character of the creator. And nowhere is that seen as clearly as in the cross. In the cross, think about it. The cross was the symbol of Roman power over everyone. Rome used the cross to tell you how powerful they were. When people would try to push back and say, you know what, I think we could take Rome, they'd be like, you want to know how much you can't take Rome? About this much. And everybody would be like, oh, that's right. We better just stay in line. We better not get out of line. Like, that's how powerful Rome is. Jesus took a symbol of torture and political power, and he transformed it into a symbol of humble, self-giving love. So much so that people all over the world wear crosses around their neck or on their person in some way to demonstrate fidelity, love for God. Could you imagine being a first century person in the Roman Empire and seeing someone wearing a cross around their neck? You'd be like, what kind of sadistic creep are you? Right? And yet Jesus, in his creative genius transforms it in this, this symbol of torturous murder into one of self-giving love. And through it, he tells us everything we need to know about God and about ourselves. In the cross, we see the lengths to which God will go to reveal his love for us. In the cross, we see how God brings about God's purposes in the world. In the cross, we see that 
We don't simply have the option of power over people or passivity. But we can engage people honestly and authentically through humble, self-giving love. In the cross, we understand what it means to be fully human. Everything we need to know about God and about ourselves, we find as we come to the cross. That's quite a creative act. Author and theologian Greg Boyd says it this way. He says, Our relationship with God is completely mediated by our mental conceptions of him. The depth of our love and the vibrancy of our relationship with God can never outrun the beauty of of our conceptions of him. So too, the beauty of our life will never outrun the beauty of the way we envision God. The, the image that we come to find at, in the cross of who God is will shape the way in which we engage with God and with others in the world because we will never outrun the beauty of the way that we envision God. Think about that. Whatever your mental conception is of God, your life will never be more beautiful than that. In the cross, Jesus gives us the most beautiful picture of God. One who transforms a tool of intimidation into a symbol of his love. I thought about this as I was reading a story this week. Um, there's this uh, place in, well, so there's a, a nonprofit in Pittsburgh that has been working with uh, local kind of community folks because they've, they've had issues with animals, wild animals coming in and like raccoons and squirrels and other types of things. And I kind of know what this is like. I, I live in Wyomissing and uh, Wyomissing's you know, a couple miles that way. <clears throat> and it's this interesting kind of juxtaposition where we're not far from the city of Reading, but we're also not far from a, a creek. And so there are times where you, like, drive around and there's actual deer just standing in the middle of the road as you're on your way somewhere. And it's like a high traffic area, and you're like, Why? what is going on? Did they get lost? And I've had skunks in my backyard. Our dog got sprayed by a skunk. I mean, there's just, like, wildlife all over the place. It's kind of interesting. But in Pittsburgh, they have this problem, too. They, they have wildlife coming in, and raccoons will get into people's homes, and then they're not quite sure how to get them out of their homes, and it just becomes a problem. And so the city has begun providing uh, traps for people to trap these animals and get rid of them, and of course they euthanize the animals. And, and so folks who are concerned about the impact that this has on the environment have stepped up and said, hey, we need to come up with a better way, and, and how can we more humanely deal with these animals and help people and nature live kind of together and, in a way that isn't destructive and Somebody who was, who was kind of thinking about this invited a Portuguese artist named Bordalo II and said, look, he had done some, some different kinds of art in different places. He said, hey, could you come and work with us and, and create something that would be a compelling picture of what we're trying to do here? And so what he did is he created this picture that you see in front of you. It's actually on the, I want to get this right, it's on the, the back of the construction junction, which is a nonprofit that you can kind of bring your recycled materials to and, and they'll give you money for them. Uh, so he took regular trash that he found on the streets of Pittsburgh and he made this picture of a baby raccoon. I mean, if you look close, you can kind of see, like, this is a toy car over here and there's just various things that is ju- it's just trash that he found. And from it, he made this remarkable picture of a baby cra- raccoon. So what did he do? This creative mind said... Well, look, we're trying, to, we're trying to 
help people value the natural world that they're inhabiting? How do we do that? Well, let's take something that is inherently destructive to that world and turn it on its head and use it to illustrate what we're hoping for, new life. It's remarkable. And I think it's a pretty great picture of what we see Jesus do in the cross. He, he takes this image of death and makes it a symbol of life. And not only just an image of death, but an, a literal source of torturous, horrific death. He takes and he makes it a source of eternal life for all people. That's quite a bit of creativity. In Jesus, we come to see the fullness of God's creative nature. And we are invited to participate that in that as we follow Jesus, to experience that for ourselves and to live into that together. So as we, as we kind of bring things to a close this morning, we're going to, in a moment... Um, we're going to have just a few minutes to interact together. We're trying to do a Q&A here every week where if you have questions or thoughts on some of what we're talking about, you can raise your hand and you can ask those questions and we'll interact a little bit. Um, Carmen will have a mic and she'll come around to you. If you have a question, you can stick your hand up. Uh, if you don't feel comfortable asking a question in front of other people, you can also text the number on the back of your bulletin and we can try to get to as many of those as possible. Um, but before we do... A couple of things to kind of think about as you leave from here this week and and as we move towards Easter. The first is, what is the image of God that you have in your head? What is God like? Not just what does God look like, but what is the character of God that you kind of default towards? And, And remember, you will never outrun the character of God that that is in your head. You will never become more than your picture of God. Who is God to you? In Jesus, we're invited to see the God who conquers death and sin and our own self-destructive tendencies and all the evil and violence in the world not by amassing a stronger, bigger army, but by transforming death into life, by subverting death and showing his creative genius by making it the source of life. So I would invite you this week to reflect on that picture of God, the the picture of God that we find in Jesus, to spend some time this week thinking about. Maybe you want to go to Philippians is a letter that we find in the New Testament written by a guy named Paul. And in chapter 2, there's this hymn about Jesus who is in in very nature God, but doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he takes on the nature of a servant, lowering himself to death, even death on a cross. There's this kind of hymn that, that Paul writes in there that's a great reflective piece. Maybe you want to take some time this week and just reflect on that in Philippians chapter 2. Maybe you want to join us for our Good Friday service. Again, Carmen had mentioned we're going to do a Stations of the Cross. This is kind of a new thing for us. If you come from a more of a Catholic background or a liturgical background, this may, not, this may be kind of familiar. Um, and while we're not a, a Catholic church, um, we do kind of really value some of these, these symbols that draw us to see God in, in different ways. 
And so what, what we're going to do together on Friday night is simply for the first 45 minutes, we're just going to have you know, some soft music playing and an opportunity for you to come through and do some interactive worship at different stations of the cross. And then we're going to pull together at around 6.45 for about 15 minutes of communion, uh, worship uh, together. So it'll be brief, just an hour, but it's a great opportunity to reflect some on the, the picture of God that we find in Jesus crucified on Good Friday. So maybe that's something you could do. Whatever it is, this week spend some time reflecting on Jesus on the cross as the clearest picture we get of who God is and what kind of kingdom God is bringing in Christ. Secondly, um, if Jesus kind of arriving on, as a humble king on a donkey tells us something about the t- type of kingdom that he's bringing, if our king is a humble servant, then what does it mean for us when we look to live out everyday life and our relationships? How might we model that attitude of humility, other-centered love, as we engage in our relationships with our coworkers? Like, think, think about it. If you lead in any capacity, like maybe at work you have people who report to you Maybe it's in your family, your kids. Um, maybe you, you kind of help lead in a nonprofit somewhere. Wherever it is, what would it look like if your leadership reflected this kind of, uh, an, of an attitude behind leadership, this servant king model, this, this one who came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many is what, is what Jesus says about himself. How might your leadership be shaped by that vision of the king? What might be different in how you relate to the people that you're leading? And then finally, I think one of the things that we find as we come to Good Friday in particular, but even in this story, is this vision of God subverting death with life. And I wonder where in your life might feel like death. Where have you where in your life are you experiencing a sense of loss? Maybe that's a, a relationship that feels like it has died or it's dying. Maybe it's around kind of your hopes for your your kids, or your, your life with your spouse. Maybe it's a general sense of, about the future and where you thought things were going and things have changed and you feel like some things have died. If Christ is in fact showing us something about God's character and how God regularly works to bring life from death, then maybe, maybe death isn't the end. And this is what Easter tells us, right? That not just, that this is what God is like. God is one who is regularly reaching down into death and calling forth life. That he's doing this creative act, surprising us all by saying, death is not nearly as powerful as you think.
where in your life does it feel like death? And what might it look like if God really is one who brings life from the dead for you to begin to live in hope that death is not the end? It might only just be another opportunity for God to do some creative work to bring life in unexpected ways. I'm going to end with a quote by theologian Jürgen Moltmann. He says, The crucified Christ is the key for all the divine secrets of Christian theology. The crucified Christ is the key for all the divine secrets of Christian theology. Christ on the cross is our clearest picture and understanding of who God is and what it means to be in relationship with God. All right, so let's talk. I would love to hear what what questions do you have, what thoughts come up as we talk about these things. Um, Again, Carmen uh, is going to have a mic. And so if you have a question or a thought and you want to stick your hand up, she will come to you again. You can also text the number on the back of your bulletin, and we can uh, try to interact with some of those as well. Uh, first of all, I appreciated the picture of Morgan Freeman along with all the other pictures of the classically <laughs> depicted God. So really appreciated yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, just wanted to just share my thoughts on how I think some people discount speech as a form of art. They don't mm-hmm. believe that speech and conversation are really the creative acts that they are because really there is no scripted path that a conversation could take or the effects that might be brought from it and I think we see that through the story about God or Jesus healing the um, Gentile woman's son or child I can't remember Um, but I think we see that through his interaction with her bringing the attention not to necessarily himself but more to the ideas that the culture at the time had that women are lesser and Gentiles are lesser Mm. through giving the people what they expected but not necessarily in the way that they expected. Mm -hmm. And I think Another thing is that some people don't really perceive God to be a like an ethereal entity. They see it through the eyes of someone that they know. Mm-hmm. For instance, I see God as my grandmother who has passed away. Mm-hmm. And I see through her life some of his teachings and some of who she is in the teachings of God. And that, it brings me peace to know that not only did I know someone that amazing, but that someone that amazing has existed for a long time. Thanks for sharing that. A couple of things. So one, I think you're right. I think words, the way in which we use our words, not only is it critical, but it can be a real art. Um, somebody once coined the phrase, and I don't 
know who it is, I, or else I would give them credit, uh, that words make worlds. And it's really true that our speech creates environments, actual environments that we experience. So how we talk matters. How we use our words matters. Um, so absolutely you're right. And, and if you've been around anyone who uses words really well to build people up, you know the difference that can make in your life and the lives of people around you. If you've been around someone who uses words really well to tear people down, you know that similarly the same kind of impact that can have on people in an environment. And so, yes, absolutely, absolutely. That's great. Any other comments, questions? One over here. So I don't know if, if you talked about it at all, but um, the same time that Jesus is entering, at the same time Jesus is entering Jerusalem, Pontius Pilate's also entering with the force of Roman authority mm. because of Passover, because of what Passover meant. Mm. So Jesus was kind of subverting, or not kind of, but was subverting the power of Rome, saying this is how a king enters mm. the city. Mm. So you're saying at the same time a Roman ruler is coming in another part of town riding on a war horse while Jesus enters in on the donkey. Yeah, I have heard that before. That's great. Other questions, comments? Okay. Well, we are going to move into a time of communion. Um, And as we do, you know, as we talk about the creativity of Christ, one of the creative acts of Christ is to give us this meal. Jesus is taking, actually taking the Passover meal. Again, this meal in which we we have an expectation of deliverance. Jesus takes this meal and transforms it into an expectation of deliverance, not just for the Jews, but for all people. And so as we take communion, as we take a little bread and a little juice, what we're doing is we're coming around this food that represents the body and the blood of Christ in expectation of Christ's deliverance of us. It's still a meal of expectation of deliverance. Now the focus of that is Christ and his death and resurrection. It's amazing. So as we take this together, I would just invite you. Um, what we'll do is, we'll, uh, when, after I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to have a song. And once the music begins, you can stand and kind of move to the outside aisles. Come down the front, take your bread and juice, and there's gluten-free wafers um, at each place as well if you're gluten-free. Take that and kind of move back to your seat. And whenever you're ready, you can just take that. And as you do, reflect on the, the image of God that we find in Jesus crucified. This God who delivers us, not by military power and might, but by his self-giving love, transforming a, a tool of death into one of life. So let's pray together. And then if, if you are, for whatever reason, uncomfortable taking communion, uh, feel free to hang tight in your seat and enjoy the music. And then uh, we'll continue into the next day in just a moment. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this creative act 
of a little bread and a little juice that we take into our bodies to remember your broken body on the cross. To remember the ways in which you creatively subvert death with life. That you creatively use a tool of destruction to point to eternal life. As we take this bread and juice together, and as we leave this place today, would you help us to realign our internal understanding of who you are so that our our mental image of you reflects the image of you that we find in Christ on the cross, one of humble, self-giving love that calls us to find life as we follow you in the direction of self-giving love. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen. Amen.